0: If you'll please take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 2. We've been looking at these seven messages that Jesus has for seven churches in what was called Asia Minor. Today, it's modern-day Turkey. And basically, in the first few chapters of Revelation, Jesus is dictating these messages to the Apostle John, who's writing them down, and he's going to go deliver these letters to each of these churches. And each letter follows a basic pattern. Jesus begins by revealing something about Himself, a characteristic about Himself. Then He usually compliments the church that He's writing to about something good they're doing, that He encourages them to keep on doing. But then for all but two of them, He then offers a criticism of something, a rebuke, of something that they're doing wrong, that they need to correct. And He then gives them a command for correcting it. And then He follows up and concludes each letter with a commitment that He makes to that church if they follow through with His commands. And so far we've looked at Jesus' message to Ephesus. Ephesus was a a careless church. They looked good on the outside. They had all the programs. They had a great staff. They had wonderful facilities. They had it going on. But inwardly, they had become careless with their walk with the Lord and they had lost their first love. Jesus then wrote to uh, another church we studied last week, the church of Smyrna, Only one of two churches of these seven that Jesus had nothing negative to say about. This was a church that was facing immense uh, cultural pressure and persecution, but they remained a courageous church, and Jesus had only good things to say to them. But today we're going to continue by looking at Jesus' letter to the church at Pergamum. Now, Pergamum was known as the greatest city in Asia Minor. It was an intellectual and religious hub in the Roman Empire, in fact, talking about the intellectual hub there, it originally housed what is was later known as the Library at Alexandria, Egypt. Those of you who remember your, your world history, Alexandria, Egypt, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world was the library there. Well, that library was originally at Pergamum until Mark Antony decided to give it as a birthday gift to Cleopatra. Now, my wife loves books, but I'm not giving you a library, dear. I'm sorry, I uh, don't have room for that. At the house, you know, but Mark Antony, he gave Cleopatra a library. As far as being a religious hub, Pergamum was where the first temple to Caesar was built. So as you can imagine, the imperial cult in Pergamum was very popular. And there was a lot of pressure. And that's one of the reasons why Jesus, as we'll see, calls Pergamum the place where Satan lives. So let's turn to Revelation chapter 2 and begin in verse 12. To the angel meaning to the pastor of the church in Pergamum, write. These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to Him who receives it. Well, the first thing we see in this letter, as I've mentioned, is the characteristic Jesus reveals about Himself. And in this letter, the characteristic is that Christ judges by His Word. Christ judges by His Word. Now, He says there that that He has a sharp, double-edged sword. And of course, we know that a sword is a typical symbol of authority, of war, maybe of judgment but we see in verse 16 that this sword that Jesus has is actually coming out of His mouth. And we see this image previously in Revelation 1.16. We talked about that in the first message in this series, that when John had his initial vision of Jesus, Jesus had this sharp, double-edged sword coming out of His mouth. It says in Revelation 1.16, in His right hand He held seven stars, and coming out of His mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. And later on in chapter 19, Jesus will come and strike down the rebellious nations with a sharp sword that comes out of His mouth. So what is this sword? What is the sword that's coming out of Jesus' mouth? It's the very Word of God. It's the Word of God. In fact, Hebrews 4.12 tells us that the Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. Jesus is telling the church that while Rome may have the right to execute what the Romans called the right of the sword, that their sword could only harm you physically. It could only destroy your body. But God's Word can penetrate through to our inmost thoughts and motives. And Jesus Christ is the true King and the true righteous Judge who alone can destroy not only our body, but our souls in hell. He's the One who is always just in His judgment, but at the same time is full of grace and mercy. Or as John put it at the beginning of his Gospel in John 1, 14, the Word. Jesus doesn't just have the Word. Jesus is the Word of God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of what? Full of grace and truth. Jesus judges by His Word by his truth, but he always does it with grace and with mercy for those who are his. The second thing we see in this letter then, Jesus moves on and gives a compliment. Now, the compliment to this church is that they did not waver in their faith. They didn't waver. Look back there at verse 13 again. He says, I know where you live. Now, that could sound a little threatening, right? I mean, if Liam Neeson called you up and said, I know where you live, that would be a bad thing. But Jesus is saying, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Like those believers in Smyrna last week, the church in Pergamum suffered severe persecution for their devotion to Jesus. And like the church in Smyrna, they remained faithful. They chose to reject fear and to remain faithful to their Lord. Things were so bad for believers in Pergamum, Jesus compares it to the place where Satan lived. He even calls it Satan's throne. In a way, I guess Jesus is saying that they are in a living hell in Pergamum. I mean, we think we're facing persecution here in America, and don't get me wrong. I believe that we are facing growing threats to our religious liberty and. We are living in a society that is more hostile to Christian uh, to biblical Christianity, but what we're facing today is nothing like what these saints in Pergamum were dealing with. Jesus complimented them as being true to his name. In other words, they were facing a choice. Who are you going to serve? Who are you going to serve? They could declare, Jesus is Lord. We're going to serve Jesus. And they could suffer. They could suffer economically and socially and even legal consequences. Or, they could serve Caesar. They could decide to say, Caesar is Lord and bow their knee to Him and live a life of relative ease and worldly success. Who are you going to serve? I was kind of reminded about this uh, this week. Some of the preschoolers came by the office this past week. I think it was the three- and four-year-olds. And they were kind of getting a little tour of the church office and meeting the staff. And, and I kind of met them right outside the office and was talking to them. And one of the teachers said, now, now, this is our pastor. This is Pastor David. Who does he work for? And one of the preschoolers popped up and said, Miss Jackie! <laughs> one of our preschool teachers. And I said, Yes. Whatever Miss Jackie says, I'm going to do. That's right. Who are you going to serve? you going to serve Caesar? you going to serve Jesus or you going to serve Miss Jackie? You know, that's, that's probably Miss Jackie at that moment was a good answer. But, but seriously, these believers had a clear choice and they couldn't have it both ways. And what the... Believers in Smyrna last week, what the believers in Pergamum today, what they chose was they chose to live for Christ. They said to live is Christ and to die, if we have to die for it, well, to die is gain. They would not bow down and burn incense to Lord Caesar. They feared the sword of Christ far more than they feared the sword of Caesar. Now, one particular member of their church was this man named Antipas. He gets particular praise from Jesus for being a faithful witness because he refused to renounce Christ even at the cost of his own life. Now, it's no small matter for Jesus to call Antipas here a faithful witness because twice in the book of Revelation, Jesus uses that same phrase to refer to himself. Jesus refers to himself as the faithful witness. So it is no small praise that Jesus is giving Antipas here. He's saying that Antipas accurately portrayed the character of Christ in his life and by his death. And in the face of that kind of persecution, the church at large in Pergamum chose to remain faithful. They chose to be true to Jesus' name, even if it meant suffering Antipas' fate. So yes, they are deserving of this compliment from Christ. But, unlike Smyrna, Jesus does have a rebuke for them. See, Pergamum was courageous, like Smyrna, in the face of persecution. But they unfortunately chose to compromise with the world in other areas. You see, they, 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 they may have been saying Jesus is Lord with their lips, which is good, because it was costing them their life. But they weren't saying Jesus is Lord by their life, by the way they lived. And so we see the criticism. And the criticism is that they compromised. Now, Satan couldn't destroy this church outwardly as a roaring lion, so he decided to deceive and to damage them inwardly as that crafty serpent whispering his lies. The church allowed false teachers in their midst to influence them with false doctrines and worldly practices. And so Jesus had a sharp rebuke for them. Which just goes to show that obedience in one area doesn't cover over disobedience in another area, does it, parents? Moms and dads. And the same is true for us. So what were these areas of compromise? Jesus points out two. One was that they compromised in their worship. Jesus references the teaching of Balaam. Now you have to go back to the book of Numbers in the Old Testament to understand what Jesus is talking about. You may remember the children of Israel. They have, they have, they're wandering in the wilderness. They've left Egypt, headed for the promised land, and they didn't trust God to go into the promised land, so He's got them wandering around. And they they come near this part of the region that was inhabited by these Moabites. And there was this Moabite king named Balak. And Balak hired this false prophet named Balaam to go and to put a curse on the children of Israel. But God wouldn't let Balaam do it. Balaam would try to speak a curse and instead he'd speak a blessing. And he was frustrated. Balak was frustrated. But God would not allow him to curse Israel. But Balaam really wanted that money. He wanted Balak to pay him. So what he did was, is he taught, this is what Jesus is saying here, Balaam taught Balak how to entice the Israelites to sin. We can't curse them from without, just like Satan couldn't destroy this church from without by the power of Rome, but maybe we can infiltrate from within. And we can damage their relationship with God. If we look at Numbers 25, 1-3, through three, we can see exactly... What that looked like, it says, while Israel was sitting, was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with the Moabite women who invited them to sacrifice to their gods. The people ate and bowed down before these gods. So Israel joined in worshiping the bell of Peor and the Lord's anger burned against them. The Moabites lured Israel into their cultic worship practices. They bowed down to idols. They participated in pagan feasts. They committed sexually immoral acts with temple prostitutes. And they convinced themselves that they were just being neighborly. They were just trying to appreciate and fit in with a different culture. You know, they were just trying to be relevant. But it was a fatal compromise. And in the same way, some of the members of the church in Pergamum thought, there's nothing wrong with being tolerant and accepting of the Roman religion. I mean, what harm in there is there in putting a little pinch of incense on the altar to Caesar and bowing our knee and, and you know, just pledging our allegiance as good citizens of Rome? What harm is there But Antipas refused such compromises and was martyred for it? And others in the church chose to take the easy way out and just conform to the culture. I mean, that kind of compromise could make life easy for you. You could get in good with the trade guilds. You might get invited to better parties. And you certainly would avoid any legal repercussions from Rome. Yeah, they might have gained that, but you know what it cost them? It cost them their crown and their testimony. They abused God's grace and their freedom in Christ by indulging in pagan worship practices. And sadly, the believers in Pergamum that didn't compromise, they tolerated it. They tolerated these false teachers in their midst. They did nothing to rebuke, to expel from their congregation. They did nothing to stop this corrupted worship of God in their midst. Churches today face similar temptations to compromise. I mean, we may not burn incense to Caesar or eat meat sacrificed to idols or engage in sexual immorality, but a lot of Christians today flirt with worldly practices and priorities in their worship. We need to ask ourselves some pointed questions. We need to allow the sword of the Lord to penetrate our heart and our soul. Who or what are you glorifying in your worship? Is it yourself Is it how worship makes you feel? Is it the nostalgia of past worship experiences? Is that what you're glorifying in worship? Who gets the spotlight in your worship? Is it yourself? Is it the pastor? Is it the choir? The instrumentalists? Who is the focus of your worship? See, too often worship becomes about idolizing the past. Traditions and styles and methods. And, you well, know, that's the way I grew up. Is that that's the end-all, be-all of worship in a 2,000-year history of worshiping God, right? Or is it about idolizing those who lead in worship? You know, worship was good today because the choir sounded good. Worship was good today because that soloist was amazing. Worship was good today because the preacher preached passionately, but not too passionate and not too long. We come to worship focused more on what we get out of it than what we give to God in it. These are worldly priorities and ways of thinking. We get hung up on our preferences and we forget the person of Christ and the people of God around us. Because what matters is who we worship and why we worship Him. That must never change. But instruments and songs and styles do change. I mean, we're not, we're not doing any Gregorian chants this morning, are we? Not speaking in Latin today, am I? These things change. The most important aspect of Christian worship is this. Is it biblical in its content and approach, and is it done in spirit and truth? That's it. That's what matters. That's why Jesus told the woman at the well who was all hung up on where we should worship. Well, some say we should worship here. Some say we should worship there. And this is what Jesus said. He said, A time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and His worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. And I believe that if you're really worshiping in spirit and truth, you don't care whether it's your favorite song or not. You don't care. You don't care how good the choir sounds. You don't care what kind of instruments are on the platform. If you're worshiping in spirit and truth, all you care about is loving on the Lord Jesus Christ. But not only were the Christians in Pergamum compromising in their worship, they were secondly compromising in their walk. In their walk, in their lifestyle. We saw this name, Nicolaitans, in Jesus' message to the Ephesian church. That church, they dealt with those false teachers properly, even though they they lost their first love. But the church in Pergamum, they needed to be firm and decisive in rejecting these teachings and practices. Now, what did these Nicolaitans teach? Well, it was very similar to what Balaam was teaching, especially in regards to sexual immorality. The Nicolaitans taught that because of God's grace, we don't really need to restrain ourselves from fulfilling our every desire. You know, God's going to forgive you. God's a God of grace. They try to turn our liberty in Christ into license to sin. Now, y'all, we hear a similar message today. There are those who want us to believe that because God is love, well, He can't be against any expression of human love. Whether it's romantic, sexual, or otherwise, love is love, they say. I mean, how can you tell someone who they can and can't Love. It doesn't matter to them what the Bible clearly teaches about God's design for human sexuality and marriage. In their mind, God doesn't judge. He's a permissive God. Listen to what Paul had to write to the church in Rome about this very thing. You heard some of it already this morning. Paul says, what then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you're slaves to the one whom you obey? Whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you will hardly obey the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You've been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I put this in human terms because you're weak in your natural selves. In other words, Paul's let me break this down to you a little bit simple here. Just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. But what benefit did you reap at that time from the things that you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness. And the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Paul says, who are you going to serve? You can't have two masters. You have to stand, we have to stand against those who want to abuse words like love and identity and diversity and so on to justify sin and reject God's good created order. We cannot be relevant to a lost world by making God's word relative. We must not believe the lie that we have to go along to get along. We cannot trade in God's truth for the world's definition of love. Remember what I read in 1 John 14, that the Word of God came to fully reveal to us the grace and truth of God. Grace and truth are not mutually exclusive. We must hold on to both of them equally. If the church looks, talks, and acts like the lost world, what good are we anyway? Jesus doesn't have to remove our lampstand. We've removed it for Him. Right? How can we be a lamp shining in the darkness if we want to become the darkness? Light is necessarily different and distinct from the darkness around it. And so we must be as we are in the world, but not of the world. So what are they to do about it? Jesus gives them this command. He says, repent. Repent. While Antipas faced Rome's sword, Jesus is saying, if y'all don't repent, you're going to face my sword. This reminds me of what Jesus warned in John 15 where He said, I am the true vine and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit while every branch that does bear fruit He prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You see, when God judges, when He disciplines His children, He always does it in order to make us more like Jesus and less like the world. He trims our wicks so that we burn brighter. He prunes and cuts off so we can bear more fruit. As Proverbs 3.12 says, the Lord disciplines those He loves as a Father, the Son, and whom He delights. When God comes to us as His children, He disciplines us not to destroy us, but to always make us better. Because He delights in us. He loves us. But how can we avoid that discipline? How can we avoid? You know, just like a child, your 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 parent disciplines you because they love you. They want to make you a better person. But if you don't like being grounded or getting whoopings, what do you got to do? Obey, right? Do what you know to be the right thing. And so Jesus tells them to repent, which means to change your mind, to change your attitudes and your actions. You realize you're going one way and you realize it's a wrong way and you make a course correction and you go the right way. That's what it means to repent. And Jesus gives them that clear choice turn around or face my sword of discipline. But to the church that does repent, Jesus makes this commitment. It's really a beautiful twofold promise. The first is He promises His powerful provision this hidden manna that Jesus refers to. He says, it's kind of a mysterious verse. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. What does that mean? Well, remember, let's go back again to the Old Testament. Children of Israel wandering around in the wilderness out there. They had no food. They were in the desert. And so God miraculously provided for them this bread from heaven. They would wake up in the morning and there was this white, dewy substance. And Moses came out and said, yeah, you see that stuff on the ground? Eat it. And they did. <laughs> I don't know if I could have done that. But they did. They ate it. And they didn't know what it was. And so they called it manna, which means, what is it? So they didn't know what it was, but they ate it. So if you're a good guest, you go to somebody's house, they serve you food, you don't ask what's in it, you just eat it, right? And that's what they did. And God provided for them miraculously. And it didn't matter how much or how little they gathered, it was always enough for the day. Which is why Jesus tells us to pray to give us our, this day our daily bread. Manna taught Israel to trust the Lord for their daily needs. And so here Jesus is sort of contrasting this hidden manna with Rome's meat sacrifice to idols. Rather than indulge in what the world offers, we should feast on what God offers for us. Those things that will truly nourish our souls and our relationships as Jesus said of Himself in John 6:35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to Me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in Me will never be thirsty. And as Jesus said in Matthew 4, 4, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Who or what are you relying on to sustain your soul? Are you relying on the world's solutions and practices and priorities and promises? Or are you turning to Jesus to feed and strengthen your mind and your heart and your soul and your marriage and your relationship with your children? As a church, are we going to turn to the business practices of the world to, to, to embrace the world's brand of success? Or will we rely on kingdom practices as found in God's Word? Jesus promises us His powerful provision, but secondly, He promises us His personal presence. The white stone that Jesus talks about with a, some mysterious kind of name written on it. Well, in Roman society, they would give people white stones as sort of like an invitation to a party. If I was going to throw a big party, you know, we didn't have Ticketmaster back then, I would take this white stone, I'd write your name on it, and I'd give it to you. I'd put maybe some kind of a, an insignia on it that I knew this was for me. So you couldn't take it to the Xerox place and have them just copy it onto a different rock, right? You know, so you'd have this, this white stone with your name written on it. It would act as like a ticket. And it would go into a you know, little jar as you walked in the door. What Jesus is saying here is that when we give our hearts to Him, we are accepting His invitation to feast with Him every day. As he says in Revelation 3.20, Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. And when Christ returns, those who have accepted that invitation to become His children will enjoy an eternal banquet with the Lord, as described in Revelation 19. When you come to faith in Christ, it's like He gives you a white stone, an invitation to feast with Him now and forever. And on it is written your own unique name. Now think about that. It's a name that only God the Father knows you by. You know, if you've ever Googled your name, there's lots of you out there, aren't there? There's a whole lot of David Lamberts out there. You know, my parents gave me the name David Aaron because they liked those names. I inherited the name Lambert from my dad. But God has known me from eternity past. And God knows me, not just any old David Lambert. He knows me as me. What Jesus is saying here is that when we come to faith in Christ, we are answering His invitation to have a personal, unique relationship with Him. God knows you in a way that nobody else does. And we can know Him in a way the world will never understand. Do you know God like that this morning? Have you accepted that invitation from Jesus to have that personal relationship with Him? Jesus has invited you to know Him in a way nobody else knows Him. He, he knows you deeper than you could ever imagine. as has been talked about. He knows every hair on your head. He knows every thought you think before you think it. That's kind of a scary thing to think about. But God knows that and loves you anyway. Warts and all. Have you accepted His invitation to forgiveness and eternal life? Will you be around that banquet table in heaven someday? If not, I invite you this morning to come and to put your hand in the nail-scarred hand to embrace the One who stretched His arms out on that cross to embrace you, to die for your sin and take your shame upon Himself that you might know the forgiveness of God. And those of us who do know Jesus, I want to ask you this. Are you being faithful to Him? Are you being faithful only with your lips or with your lives? Have you compromised with the world in your worship, in your daily walk? If so, Jesus is calling each of us this morning to repent. Jesus stands ready to deal with you if He has to, but He invites you this morning to come willingly and to lay whatever it is that's getting in the way of your walk with Him at His feet and experience His forgiveness anew and afresh. And finally, word to the church this morning. I just want you to know that so long as I'm pastor here, my prayer is that we would never compromise our walk with Christ by feasting on the rotten flesh of the world. That rotten meat that the world offers us and says this is good is not. And as long as I'm the pastor here, we'll never compromise the non-negotiables of the faith for the quick fixes of the world. What is God laying on your heart today? Maybe God is calling you to unite with this church and to help us to be faithful and true to Christ, not only in what we say, but in what we do. Would you stand and pray with me? Father, we love You and thank You for Your moving in our midst today, for speaking to us from Your Word, and we thank You for every one of these preschool families that are here. Father, I just pray that Your Spirit would permeate this place, deal with each of our hearts, Lord, none of us in this room are perfect. None of us have it all together. None of us know all the answers. May we cast ourselves at Your feet, at Your mercy and Your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.